0: In Matthew 27, the Jews have condemned Jesus to death, but they have no authority to actually carry it out. As a Roman province, that authority to condemn and crucify was left to Pilate, the governor. Pilate wasn't known to be popular. In the Gospels, he's presented as a cruel and murderous man. Luke chapter 13, verse 1 notes how he had some Jewish worshipers murdered. Other Jewish writers, at roughly the same time of Jesus, had even worse things to say about him. But as the man with authority... The Jews will do or say anything to get Jesus condemned. And so Pilate asks Jesus in verse 11, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. King of the Jews, interestingly enough, is a title only given by Gentiles in Matthew's gospel. It's the title that's going to hang over Jesus' head on the cross, not only as his charge, but as an insult to the Jewish people. Here hangs the king of the Jews, broken and pathetic, a worthy ruler of Israel. But Pilate's not eager to have Jesus condemned just yet. Multiple attempts are made to spare him. He offers to free him over another criminal, Barabbas. His wife, troubled by a dream, begs Pilate to have nothing to do with such a righteous man. And even in the end, Pilate attempts to literally wash his hands clean of the whole affair. But Pilate is much like Herod in Matthew 14. He has the position of power, but none of the reality as he's swayed and at the mercy of the crowd. Pilate tries to speak with Jesus, but he won't answer back a word aside from confirming the charge that he is the king of the Jews. Jesus has submitted himself so fully to the plans of God that he won't even offer a legal defense, not even a single protest of innocence. Instead of taking the humble and innocent Jesus, the crowd demands that Pilate release to them Barabbas. His name could mean son of Abbas, but it also sounds very close to the Aramaic son of the father possibly to be seen in parallel with Jesus' claim to be the son of his heavenly father. Another striking parallel is that many of the earliest manuscripts actually give Barabbas' full name as Jesus Barabbas. Most textual critics agree that it is original to Matthew's gospel, and that later Christian scribes, embarrassed by the comparison, tried to delete it. But if it is original, then a comparison should be made. Jesus is the Messiah sent from God completely unexpected and contrary to popular ideas of what the Messiah should be. Barabbas, on the other hand, is a notorious criminal. Mark tells us that he's a rebel. Romans didn't crucify simple burglars. They only crucified the worst lawbreakers and those who were hostile to Rome. Barabbas was likely a Robin Hood-type figure who lived outside the bounds of law, but still found strong support among the people. So Pilate offers up two Jesuses. Will you take the Messiah of God, humble and lowly? Or are you going to take the path of violent revolution? The crowd shout for Barabbas. And as for Jesus, in verse 25, all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Well, within 40 years, Israel would rebel against Rome again, leading to the bloodshed not only of those who were alive during the days of Jesus, but their rebellious children as well. They chose the path of violent opposition instead of peace and were destroyed for it. So Jesus is now led out to be crucified. Crucifixion involved being flayed, down even to the bones sometimes, and then having nails driven into the hands or wrists, as well as feet, in a public display of punishment. The cross wasn't only a horrifically painful way to die, but a shameful way as well. There really are no modern parallels to help describe the shame of dying on the cross. Matthew focuses less on the physical torment of the cross, focusing instead on the shame and mocking of those who stood around him. They mock him as one who claimed to save others, but couldn't deliver himself. And in an ironic twist, it was this very act that did save us. In the final moments of his death, we have a series of events that need to be interpreted together. There's a period of darkness over the land for about three hours, and Jesus calls out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And after his death, there's an earthquake, and the temple curtain is torn from top to bottom. And after his resurrection, we're told that the saints themselves are raised. It's after all of this is witnessed that leads the centurion and those with him to exclaim in verse 54, Truly, this was the Son of God. The events have typically been interpreted as God really having forsaken Jesus, and the darkness being a sign of God turning his face away from his Son. But a better understanding of this is to realize that Jesus is quoting the opening verse of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? It's a psalm in which the author struggles with the apparent abandonment of God to their enemies. It seems as if all hope is lost and that they truly are forsaken until the abrupt shift happens in verses 22 through 31. The psalm doesn't end with a dying breath of despair, but a declaration of victory. Verse 24 especially stands out, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Jesus' quotation of Psalm 22 says that things look bad, and you think that all hope for me is lost. But even still, you're going to see that God is going to deliver his son from death. So then what about the darkness? Well, Psalm 22, verse 24 is pretty clear that God has not hidden his face from him. And nowhere do we read about God turning his face away from Jesus. Instead, we should see this connected to Amos 8, verses 7 through 9. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile, and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. God is pronouncing his judgment against his own people in Amos saying that there will be a day of darkness, like the mourning of an only son. The darkness at Jesus' crucifixion is a sign of judgment against Israel because they've rejected God. But it's also a sign of mourning because they've murdered his only son. But for the rest, it's a sign of entering into God's presence. The temple curtain is split from top to bottom, we're told, indicating that it is God's initiative to remove the barrier that separates us from the most holy place. And as Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22 states, we have confidence to enter into that holy place now, opened through his blood, so that we can dwell with God eternally.